Hi guys, welcome to this week's NTT20 podcast. George Ellick is with me. I am Ali Maxwell. Since we last spoke on the Monday pod, two slates of fixtures across the EFL, so plenty to digest. This weekend saw a second consecutive weekend of storm-affected football. I'm quite keen, George, to avoid a Ciara, Kira, Kiara type issue. So please confirm that it is Storm Dennis and not Storm Denis. Yes, Storm Dennis is double N. So that should be a clue. Didn't take the uh, French pronunciation. But sometimes one N can still be Dennis. Mm. So that would have been carnage. When there is a Storm D-E-N-I-S, that's when we're in trouble. Okay, fine. Well, it was also in in all three leagues, the reverse of the opening day fixtures. So it was quite nice when you saw the scores roll in to cast your mind back to that sunny weekend at the beginning of August and remember some of the things we spoke about then. So let's get into things championship-wise, George. Only two teams won both their games last week, and they were Luton and Blackburn. We're going to give them credit in due course. There were also only two winners in the top 10 heading into the weekend. So, George, would you say, on a general level, the majority of the talking points from the championship weekend came down towards the bottom of that division? Yes. I I would say that the one thing at the top which which we can notice now is there's been a lot of talk over the last two or three weeks about how you know that 10 point 12 point gap disappeared suddenly on the back of Saturday that gap has is kind of come back a little bit with with West Brom now boasting a seven point gap to third and Leeds three points clear of Fulham as well so that would be the only area where maybe you know going in Saturday's games I felt like it was West Brom and then a, a clutch of clubs between second and, and eighth probably whereas now it feels again like those two out in front are I have a bit between them and the chasing pack, but as you mentioned, I think the relegation battle probably didn't exist before Saturday, and at five o'clock on Saturday, suddenly, it looks like we've got something to talk about. Yeah, spot on. Let's just pay off those top teams in the division. Leeds, George, 1-0 winners against Bristol City. There was something of a, of a comforting aspect of this in terms of it being a similar story to many Leeds games this season. The expected goals was 3.02 to 0.08, according to InfoGoal. Leeds absolutely dominating, battering Bristol City. Um, And look, Dan Bentley had a fantastic game. There were chances squandered. Uh, One notable one from Bamford and uh, another few from some of his teammates. One thing I wanted to point out is two sensational passes from Leeds centre-backs. And I think, you know, when a centre-back makes incredible an incredible pass. It, it's always noteworthy. But just through watching the highlights, you had Ben White with a through ball to Helder Costa. And then not long after that, Liam Cooper with a sensational ball through to, to Costa as well. And uh, that was the thing that really, uh, apart from Dan Bentley's brilliant shot-stopping performance, that was something that, that stood out to me in that game, Georgia. Anything stand out to you in particular here? It's just Calvin Phillips again, um, a player who I've... Quite the flavour <clears throat> of the month for you, George. Mm. Well, I, I just, I've always been a fan of his work off the ball. I've always thought Leeds fans, and probably still do think, they maybe overrate him slightly technically. But I do feel, having seen him out of the side and back in the side, and the way that he's performed in the two games since he's come back, has really shown him to be a a player who just transforms this Leeds side. I mean, there's no doubt about them technically. Generally, you know, they, they still put in decent performances in his absence, such as the Wigan one, despite the defeat. Um, but you know the not that Nottingham Forest game doesn't go the way it goes if he plays, and his return to the pitch and his return to the form has seen Leeds return to the team that we know they can be. And any talk again of, of burnout or you know this is a Bielsa side again faltering, you know the last 180 minutes of football they've played with Phillips in the middle of the park have been pretty much as good as any football they played this season. So uh, sorry to let. A, probably a couple of people down but I don't think that's going to be the case going forward I don't think they're going to be bottling this what about the league leaders quickly West Brom now as a general rule given that we tend to have about 35 games to get through we we do tend to leave out the draws but West Brom Forest had sort of top billing I suppose in the championship this weekend and you mentioned that West Brom's lead at the top is still healthy Uh, they didn't lose to Forest which would have seen that lead get cut of course but it could have been better because they held the lead, did they not? Yeah, they they, they did. They were probably Twice, good value for it fact. as well. I mean, this was 
it, it felt like a kind of a typical means of Forest to get a result this, where they probably didn't, when they didn't have the best of the game, uh, as to be expected against a side in West Brom who are top of the league. This, you know, West Nottingham Forest have only lost once against teams in the top seven. That loss came against West Brom on the, on the opening day. They're a side who rise to these big occasions, who are happy out of possession. But I still don't think they necessarily created enough in the game to, to warrant scoring two goals. The individual quality of Matty Cash for the, for the second goal was um, pivotal, I guess, to, to their season to an extent. And What a strike that was. Yeah, um, unbelievable hit. And, you know, the a lot of... Uh, vitriol aimed towards Keith Stroud the, the the referee I think that's probably fair I don't know how much of an impact it necessarily had on, on the game itself um, but f- for both sides I think it was so important for, for Nottingham Forest not to lose this game and the manner with which they got that point will make it feel a bit like a win and keeps them in touch because if West Brom win that game I, I think everyone's then playing for second I think in terms of the impact on the result, um, looking back through those refereeing decisions, and it's not something that we spend a huge amount of time on the pod talking about because I don't think it's particularly compelling uh, entertainment for the listeners, but uh, certainly Livermore uh, was was fortunate not to see red in the first half. That less of a knock on Keith Stroud and I suppose more on the assistant uh, who was right in front of it than Amiobi potentially being fouled in the build-up to the goal where West Brom went 2-1 up, a potential handball from Carl Bartley as well, which looked like a, a pretty decent case for a, a Forest penalty. Uh, and then, uh, you know, in balance at the end, a Callum Robinson goal, in inverted commas, which was not given as Kyle Bartley was lying on the floor just inside the goal and therefore offside, even though the ball was already in before it hit him. Uh, all a bit confusing, that one. But I think to all probably, probably... A fair result, given the balance of play, which favoured West Brom, as you mentioned, but the balance of refereeing decisions, certainly up until that last moment, favouring West Brom as well. So we'll move on from that game because it's just quite a complicated one, to be quite honest. And there's been plenty of online childishness between the two sides since then. Um, Let's talk about the, the relegation battle. Because, boy, did it get spicy this week, George. Uh, Not only did Luton win their game in midweek against Sheffield Wednesday, but they followed it up with a 1-0 win at Middlesbrough as well. Two clean sheets in a week, only their second and third of the whole season. Pretty good time for it, eh? Well, I think Graham Jones would rather it came before they were in this mess, to be honest. His interview was amazing, wasn't it? Did he say... Debbie. No, I was thinking about the line where he said... Two one nil wins back to back is the most pleasurable football results I can remember having. <laughs> I'm not surprised, to be honest, given how many goals they've conceded. I mean, even looking at the table now, you can see with their minus twenty seven goal difference. I'm not surprised that he's happy to snap up a couple of one nil, uh, a couple of one nil wins. And the interesting thing about this weekend was, and I guess this week in general with the midweek games is. You and I covering this every week, I think probably were just very keen for one of Wigan, Luton or Barnsley, just to get within touching distance, just to get close enough that we could have something to talk about for the rest of the season, just so that those three clubs wouldn't be annexed. And that could, of course, still happen. It's only mid-February. But now, if you're talking about sides who could possibly stay up, you're going down to the bottom. Mm. Even Barnsley on 28 points, they might be six points behind Stoke. But they, you know, that battle goes all the way up to 18th in Middlesbrough on 37. So if you're having seven teams into three, you have to count Barnsley in, in that. We know that they've got enough quality as well to um, to beat, well, to, at least to play well against good size. And they finally, I mean, that result against Fulham, you feel like has been, it's a weird thing to say, you feel like it's been coming. For Fulham, but also for, for Barnsley, who fans of theirs will tell you that since Gerhard Struber came in, the performances have been really, really high. They've created multiple chances against decent sides and generally come away with nothing. So, I mean, whilst the rhetoric seems to be, you know, the narrative is who saw that coming, I think a few people did, not necessarily 3-0 at Craven Cottage, mm. but, you know, Barnsley picking up results has been coming. Luton, I would say, is the one that you haven't necessarily been able to see coming. Wigan have, have put in decent performances at times as well. But these two Luton wins, uh, these two Luton clean sheets... Against sides, you know, decent enough sides as well. I know that Sheffield Wednesday have had their struggles, but that was as dominant dominant a 1-0 win as you're really going to see uh, with a missed penalty as well. And then going to a Borough side who have been really solid at home, who Jonathan Woodgate has got them very, very functional. They put in a decent performance when I saw them at Griffin Park the other day. So, yeah, impre- very, yeah. very impressive. Well, it was, it was 
everything they haven't been, right, mm. in the last 180 minutes of football um, with 30-odd games before that where they haven't shown this organisation, uh, I suppose, a composure as well, both in an attacking sense because they've not been a miserable attacking side, Luton. When, when I think of them this season, I think of an industrious attacking side, one that has occasionally lacked quality and creativity, uh, certainly when Izzy Brown has been out of the side, but industrious and actually getting into quite good areas, but composure in the final third has certainly been lacking. Uh, and at the back, I mean, clearly, if they've only made it their third clean sheet of the season and they only had one last time we spoke, that's been a massive issue. But composure at the back as well and a solidity that we hadn't seen previously. Cameron Carter-Vickers, who came in on loan in January, who seems to have played for you know almost half the league now on loan in the last few years. Feels but like he's the only person who, who can play for more than three clubs in a season. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, um, he had a, he had a good game, and I note that Pearson was playing right back. Pearson at centre back this season has been somewhat exposed. I note that Craney was playing in front of the back four, and we have spoken uh, previously that that screening role, which is crucial, especially when you're you're under the cosh for large part large parts. If Craney can do a, a more disciplined job, you know, it, it, it doesn't need to be a complicated role, I think. He just needs to protect that back four. And and by all accounts, the last few games, that's that's been the case. So it's interesting that for Luton, the next four games in the league are Charlton away, Brentford at home, Stoke at home and Wigan away. So uh, again, in, in four games time, we might say, ah, that was a bit of a flash in the pan. Or we might say this is absolutely on and uh, it, would be, it would be welcome if we did from a a Barnsley perspective, I noticed that after their defeat in midweek against Birmingham, the young defender Anderson uh, was really picking up a lot of heat online. Um, some of it a, a little too personal, I think, for, for a young defender, you know, in a, in a foreign land for the first time. But I did note that he was out the side this weekend. I'm not sure if it was injury related or not, but not in the squad, possibly for the first time in, in quite a few months and just their fourth clean sheet of the season with Arpo Halmer and the, the new man Sol Bauer at centre-back. So for, for, for Barnsley, I think it looks like a more impressive result on paper, doesn't it, than that Luton win? But you have to mention that they were gifted a few goals. Marek Rodak needs mentioning here. Um, I'm always, at the moment, slightly wary of criticising goalkeepers because the, the more we cover this league and the more goalkeepers get talked about, both in a positive and a negative way, the more I'm starting to notice that second-tier goalkeepers, none of them are amazing, like, the whole way through the season. Almost every single goalkeeper in this league, in fact, I'm, I'd be hard-pushed to think of one off the top of my head, has made quite a bad clangor at some point what this season. What about your man, Dan Randolph, for the last well, 18 months? Well, Randolph, I remember one bad one last season against Villa, but generally Is, is, is that generally the case excellent. for all keepers, though? Yeah, well, you'd, you'd, you'd guess that... I, I don't watch as much Premier League football as I do EFL football. You'd guess that they make slightly fewer errors because they're better goalkeepers. But, I mean, look, my, my point is we've praised Rodak in the last few weeks for some amazing performances. We praised David Raya for his impact at Brentford. Um, both of them in the last few weeks have had some absolute howlers. Um, and Rodak's... Cameron Dawson, another one at Sheffield Wednesday, who made it his own and then the last few weeks has been terrible. Correct. I, mean, I, I, I think you're right. And naturally with goalkeepers, I think these mistakes seem to come pretty close together. I, I, I think for Fulham fans and for Scott Parker, the fact that Mark Rodak um, committed two errors um, in the same game is probably a positive because they'll hope that that is yeah. something that won't happen again. I mean, for, for both, I mean, for the second goal, I, I don't understand how a goalkeeper, I, I, I cannot believe that he would make that mistake if it wasn't for, for the error in the first. I was, I was going to, I was going to just on his behalf mention the wind. I don't know if it had an impact. Yeah. But I know that ground gets very windy at the moment without that stand on the side. Maybe a ball came over the top. He thought he'd judged the trajectory of it and the wind blew it off course, but it didn't look good, did and, it? And, and any Fulham fan will know. I mean, if anyone's giving him abuse, he if it wasn't for him, not many keepers would have kept out Huddersfield in the way that he did in that second half at 3-2. I think they would have lost that game and he was, he was the star. Uh, very unlucky for him as well that the third goal went through his legs. I'm sure he would have been just desperate to get back in. And... Yeah, it's it, it's a uh, it's frustration for them. It just shouldn't paper over the cracks that that Fulham showed in that game. Also, shouldn't take too much away from Barnsley, who are good good value for their win, and for Rodak and a young keeper. I guess that the cliche is something along the lines of that. You know, it's how he bounces back from this. Uh, it's how he learns from the experience. You know, he's he's been through being 
um, the hero between the sticks. Fulham have, have really struggled uh, to to find a good keeper. You know, I was on Guardian Football Weekly with Archie Rintut uh, last week, who's a Fulham fan, and he was saying that you know Rodak's the first good goalkeeper they've had since they've been back in the Championship. I mean, or, and I think that's including last season in the Premier League as well. They've had Bettinelli coming through. They've had a few keepers who've just struggled to to make that that jersey their own. Um, so the fact that he's had one bad game shouldn't cloud the you know the fact that they've got a very very good young keeper. I also feel bad for him because he's behind Martin Dubravka in the Slovakia setup. I mean, what are the chances of producing two uh, two potentially very very good goalkeepers? And and poor old Rodak is going to have to be behind Dubravka. You'd say uh, going forward for Slovakia. Let's go and talk about Blackburn Rovers because it's been a fantastic week for them. As mentioned at the top of the show, uh, one of only two teams in the top 10 to win. They're up in eighth as a result, and they're three points behind Preston in sixth and Bristol City, of course, in seventh. Those two teams lost on the weekend. They're still locked on the same points. And Blackburn have given themselves a a, a very decent chance of catching them. They beat Charlton 2-0. This was, by all accounts, not a classic, uh, but an example of one team managing the conditions, getting themselves ahead uh, and and defending fairly resolutely in order to stay ahead. Uh, Certainly, the Blackburn Rovers midfield won that battle. Uh, I noticed that Stuart Downing getting more and more praise, which is just brilliant to see. Um, We've talked about it in the last few weeks, but to have a 35-year-old who, you know, everyone who's followed football at the top level recognises from a very, very good career uh, at the highest level and, you know, something of a reinvention, I suppose, uh, and contributing to what is a good championship team as well. But I was doing a little scouting job on Lewis Travis the other day, so I wanted to touch on him. He's a, a 22-year-old midfield player who's come through the youth system, and I know that Blackburn fans are um, very well-versed and exceptionally excited about him, but I thought for the for the wider championship uh, public, you may have seen him against your team this season, uh, it'd be interesting to know what, what people have thought about him, because every time I watch him, and certainly looking through his numbers, uh, the underlying data... Um, he appears to be right up my street. Uh, A a number six, I suppose I'd say, really tidy passer of the ball, very rarely gives it away. Um, Not necessarily an ambitious passer, but certainly an accurate passer. Very strong in the tackle and and good in duels. He's a strong midfield player. Um, And I, I like his... I like his temperament, I suppose. I like his smartness on the pitch. He seems to make good decisions. He he's, he doesn't seem to make very many errors. And, and given he's only 22 years old, that is um, easier said than done, I think, uh, at this level. So uh, either in a midfield two, which he hasn't played in too much for, for Blackburn, Mowbray, definitely a 4-2-3-1 man. Um, but as part of this double pivot, he brings a bit of everything for me. So big fan of Lewis Travis and uh, George. We just slagged off some goalkeepers, but Christian Walton is getting a lot of praise for one save in particular. He had himself a serious game. Yeah, he's he's one of these players at Blackburn who um, throughout the course of the season are probably having to reevaluate what their level is because he's been a really crucial part of a Tony Mowbray side who are punching above their weight despite the injuries. Um, he has kept Blackburn in many games a season and, and this was another example of that. Uh, he's got a decent back four in front of him. I think Lenehan and, and Tosin Adarabayo are, you know, that... that spine I guess that kind of defensive spine of those three is so so solid and it maybe um, can compensate for not the lack of quality but there maybe isn't the the same uh, level of player around them you talk about Travis who I really like uh, playing in front but he's of course like an inexperienced guy who spends most of his time having to do Stuart Downing's running mm-hmm. uh, luckily he didn't have to it was Bradley Johnson's running he was doing on uh, on Saturday but Downing is I agree just the the story here if you told me that when Bradley Dack got injured for the rest of the season, it would be Stuart Downing taking on the mantle of kind of talisman for this side, even as a creator rather than a goal scorer, I'd have been pretty surprised. And uh, it's just, there'd be something glorious about seeing Blackburn get their way into the playoffs and Stuart, a 36-year-old Stuart Downing lining up in the Premier League next season playing in a, in a kind of withdrawn midfield too. Mm. Uh, great stuff. It would be. And they've got to catch... Preston really or they've got to get above Preston in order to get into the playoffs you'd think Preston losing at home to Millwall after such a good run that they'd been on uh, not necessarily one that we saw coming but we knew that Millwall probably had more to offer than we'd seen in their game against West Brom last Sunday in those terrible conditions uh, and in potentially in drawing with Fulham which was a good game in midweek and 
I watched this one in at Quest. The first 20 minutes or so, Preston really did dominate. Um, but Preston Updates, who sent us a Sunday scouting report about this one, um, being completely honest and saying that after that bright start, Preston collapsed and Millwall attacked with aggression and urgency. And, you know, those are two key words when you discuss Millwall's uh, play under Gary Rowett. We, I think everyone, in fact, hugely respected the job that Neil Harris had done at Millwall. But when you looked at how poor a run they'd been on, stretching across two seasons, the end of last season and the beginning of this one. Um, it was hard to necessarily put your finger on and criticise Harris, who had clearly done so well with previous iterations of this Millwall team. But that word staleness popped up now and again. And in looking at the vigour and aggression and the urgency, those words again that Rowett has instilled in this team, and Neil Harris, to his credit, doing a, a good job at Cardiff as well. They're another team uh, who are level on points with Blackburn, just three outside the relegation zone. Uh, they drew two all at home to Wigan on the weekend. So probably not one for us to chat about this week, but certainly a team to keep one's eye on. Uh, Millwall, with that win, certainly squashed the league table up somewhat. They're only four points behind the playoffs now. So uh, it was a weekend in which the relegation battle certainly got more interesting. And you'd say the battle for the playoffs as well. So congratulations to to Millwall, Sheffield Wednesday nil, Reading 3, not a surprise result, which would seem a remarkable thing if I told you that two months ago, George, but very much predicted by your good self on the betting show. Yeah, I should mention here that there was the, Ali and I both selected Reading and I was allowed to go with it, so um, it wasn't just me. It's just bizarre. I mean, even though you and I both flagged up the fact that Gary Monk has a cycle which he should probably trademark. The, f- the fact it's happened so quickly and it's been so catastrophic is surprising because this Sheffield Wednesday team that six weeks ago was so functional, so solid at the back, so adept at creating chances for their striker, have just are, are just a totally different side and, and I can't really work out what's happened. And I think Gary Monk can't work out what's happened. The fans who go to Hillsborough I mean, I think they were selling ten-year season tickets uh, before the before the Blackburn game, and anyone who's bought one of those has been treated to five-nil defeat, a nil-nil against Millwall, and then a three-nil defeat. They haven't scored at home for a long time. It just the chopping and changing of teams and tactics. I cannot get behind. If you're if you are Gary Monk and you are undergoing this kind of spell, don't make these changes every game. Like, you know, you've got Forestieri playing left-back midweek then playing as number 10 three days later. Just work out what your best team is and stick with it. That's what you were doing when you were, when you were half-decent. You've got Newhue and, and Winnell basically swapping every game as to who's playing up top. Two strikers who couldn't be less similar if, if they tried to in style or, or, or just substance, I guess. It's, you know, and credit has to be given to Reading, but the fact remains that this is Reading's first win in eight. Mm. And they've gone to Hillsborough and they've got an easy victory. They've dominated the game and they've got an easy victory. I mean, Gary Monk says he's convinced he can turn it around, but if he's going to, he needs to change what he's doing at the moment because it's not working. Yeah, it was interesting to see Barry Bannon dropped, uh, certainly for this game, I think maybe the one before as well, that the idea, I think, being that while with the ball, he's such a a lovely technician and a creator, uh, without it, he's become, as they might say in American sports, a a turnstile uh, as a defender, just letting people through at will. And, And with him out the side, I guess the idea with... Kieran Lee and Pelopesi was that they would make it a little harder for Swift and Ajaria, but that wasn't the case at all. It was for those two Reading stars. A very comfortable afternoon, a, a brilliant assist from Ajaria um, for Mete's opening goal. Him and, and Swift both carrying the ball through midfield with some ease, to be quite honest with you. Um, and a, a good performance from Puskas as well. Look, the goal that he scored was, I mean, you, you can't really give him much credit for, for getting a touch on someone else's shot, but uh, in in all-round play, certainly a, an improved performance from him. So a good win for Reading. They they certainly managed that game well, but as you mentioned, George, it was a, a pleasant fixture for them to have. Just when you look at the personnel in the team, you know, we know that Kieran Westwood has been... Um, bombed out should we say he's released a statement on Twitter saying that you know there was no fallout between him and between him and Gary Monk but you'd think that maybe given the the form that Cameron Dawson's in you'd bring back a guy who's been such a you know how handy would he be to have basically in in between the sticks now uh 
you've got Iorfa struggling for form, playing alongside a kid in Uruguide who, to be frank, despite that lovely interview from the Cup, has looked out of his depth. He was terrible in the game that I saw against Blackburn. He was terrible in this one before getting sent off as well. Just needs some experienced heads. And you, you talk about Barry Bannon, he just seems to be someone who has been very much involved in everything good that, that Sheffield Wednesday have done for a while. And maybe when you're scrambling and, and kind of searching for your identity a bit, that probably isn't the time to drop him, even if he does have some shortcomings. Hey, you know who did play well? Who? QPR. Mm. Well, for the not for the first half an hour, in which Stoke went 2-0 up, looking like a, you know, more of a, a promotion contender than a relegation contender, before reverting to type and looking exceptionally relegation-y uh, for the second, <laughs> well, for the last hour of that game. I think it's fair to say, George, that uh, Stoke, not the first and won't be the last team this season to struggle fairly considerably with the concept of defending against a very easy and his new friend, Bright Osei Samuel, who has made some improvements over the last few months to become a very dangerous attacking player. Yeah, I made a bit of a, a gaffe on this one on Five Live on Saturday, where at 2-0, I mean, they're only up. They're only tuning up for three minutes, so it must have been between these three minutes. <laughs> Chappers said to me, "George, Michael O'Neill have Stoke finally found their man," and I bigged them up. I was like, "You know, there's big fan of Nathan Jones, big fan of Gary Rowett, but what he's done, he's definitely improved them. He's, you know, maybe in terms of personnel, it's not quite as as whatever." I said all this stuff about how great he'd been, and then at the end of what I said, it was two one, <laughs> and then it was four uh, two. So. Made myself look a little bit silly here, but I didn't really see this coming because, you know, Stoke have been. I tipped them up on the betting show too. They're a side who I think their their performance levels throughout the season has been better than where they are. Um, I think their performances under Michael O'Neill recently have been very good. QPR have been struggling to to show that swashbuckling form of, of recent weeks, even though I mean Eze and and, and uh, Bright Osei Samuel's form has been very good. So to to see them come back and win this game. 4-2 and, and probably be a bit shortchanged by their four goals in a way. I mean, Jack Butler made some decent saves during the game. He, of course, made a bit of a, a bit of a gaff with the fourth goal, but the game was already over by then as well. So um, difficult one this for this to take for Stoke because you feel like if they could have maintained that two-goal lead, they would be in a really, you know, I mentioned how there's a relegation battle again. They'd have been one of the teams less likely to be involved, whereas now they're, they're the side sitting just above the drop. Yeah, it was good to see Nick Powell coming to the fore, certainly for the first half hour. He picked up assists for both Stoke goals. But I think it's another game that's about Iberi Eze. And sorry if we bang on about him, but there's a there's a reason for it. Uh, Brendan, who sent in a Sunday scouting report on this game, said, much like Grealish, we are going to be left scratching our heads why a big club didn't make a move for Eze sooner. And I think that's a, a very fair thing to say, that the way that he manipulates the ball is at a level so much higher than the level he is playing at. And it's just so exciting to see where he ends up. And as a reminder, he's only 21. Uh, His next game will be his 100th game for QPR. Um, 100 appearances for them, obviously some for Wickham too on that uh, few-month loan that he had a couple of years ago as well. Um, Just the way that he's been able to grow and develop as a player, playing week in, week out for QPR, who have put so much time into him who have trusted him so much and have hope and hopefully will get a, pr- a proper reward for it in terms of a proper transfer fee this summer um, I dare say that there are plenty of 21 year olds with plenty of talent in Premier League academies who may not have yet made a senior debut or if they have maybe it's uh, a, a loan here or there where they got shipped off for a few months now that's that's not the case for everyone but I think it, it, there'll be plenty of people looking at Eze seeing 100 games under his belt and a move to the Premier League incoming and wondering whether that's a, a pretty tidy pathway for themselves um, lastly just to touch on another draw very rare to do two championship draws in one pod but Friday night we were in <laughs> with Lee Trundle and Joby McEnough and David Pratton in with Sky so great by the way uh, as much as we've always got on very well with Joby, uh, someone that we know now, uh, having worked with him a few times to meet Lee Trundle and spend Valentine's Day night Trundles. with Lee Trundle. Yeah. What a, what, I mean, A, an absolute cult hero of EFL fans, but also just, what a bloke. Just a lovely guy. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we, we could both say that we've been not pleasantly surprised, but just really um, taken by how nice all the ex-pros have been and how receptive everyone's been to having 
two um, posh twats. Complete on randoms. The, on, on the shot, you know, <laughs> working with them. Um, and Trundle Lee was just... Tr- Trundle Lee? <laughs> uh, Lee Trundle was, was certainly one of those. He was just brilliant. He was great value the whole time. He was answered lots of questions, asked us lots of questions, and he's a guy who was just, just good company. And it was a roller coaster of emotions for him. He, he certainly wasn't uh, hiding the fact that he was uh, supporting Swansea City, calling them a wee throughout, which I loved. Mm. Um, a four-all draw with Hull. Possibly the worst four-all draw you're likely to see. Like, I, I really, really want to promote this product at all times, the EFL, because it suits us very well. But given this was four-all, which is you know, as scorelines go about as good as it gets. I mean, it was exceptionally low quality and somehow it didn't feel like that much happened in the game. Yeah, someone messaged me after the game saying it was like a testimonial. <laughs> um, and that was about right. It didn't, it felt like there was very little riding on it. There probably was very little riding on it. The defence was terrible. The goals were pretty bad, uh, all in all. Yeah, I don't know if bad for all draws exists. Um, I you came know, away if I, was, quite... if I was live on Sky right now, I would say it was an absolute humdinger. <laughs> but the reality is that it was just... I mean, both managers after the game were, were were livid, and I can understand why. It just, given we were quite excited to watch a Swansea side, a um, bit more in-depth than you're able to generally, and with some new players in January... I mean, Gallagher got a nice assist for the first goal. Brewster's sort of snapshot was was well taken, although a bit of a gift from the goalkeeper in in many ways. But they were they were poor, Swansea. They didn't look like a team that should be challenging for a, a playoff spot. But then again, you know, I think there are plenty of occasions where you might tune into a Preston game or a Bristol City game, dare I say, a Blackburn game or a Cardiff game, a, a Millwall game or a Swansea game, and and these are the teams all within five points of each other with a sniff. You know, depending which game you tune into, you might leave that game thinking this is an exceptional team. Sometimes you might leave thinking this is a very, very poor team. That's kind of the nature of the league this season. Time for League 1 now. League 1. And, uh, well, there were only two teams in the Championship that won two games in a week. But there were five teams in League 1 who had a fantastic few days. So, congratulations to Sunderland, Accrington, Gillingham. Fleetwood Town, Coventry City. It's kind of hard to know where to start in terms of the weekend action because there were 11 games, 10 games in fact. Only one of them was drawn, George. So we got plenty to choose from. What do you think was the most significant result from the weekend? What caught your eye the most? (laughs) Except for the draw. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) I would say the Ipswich-Burton result is massive. Ipswich 4, Burton 1. Correct. Nice. Um, Because Burton went one up at Portman Road and it would have felt to Ipswich fans like, understandably, I think if if they lost that game, it was getting to to breaking point. Everything. The the squad, the manager, the season was, was kind of starting to really tumble around them. So, to come back from going 1 0 down, having not scored from open play in about 15 years, to come back from that and to win 4 1. Um, is really significant. We, we had a bit of a full storm with Ipswich recently where they put four past Accrington. So fans will be pretty desperate that that isn't the case. Uh, their next game is against Oxford on Saturday. Oxford have yet another midweek game coming up tomorrow. So again, probably quite a good time to be playing them. Getting the excuses in early. <laughs> yeah, me and Carl. No, I, I, it just feels like now with Ipswich on the back of that, of that result against you know a very, very decent Burton side who... I liked how you mentioned that Jamie Murphy was the League One Iron Robin. You'd think that quite soon teams will start kind of pushing him onto his left foot, but not yet. He just gets the ball, cuts inside, and finds that finds the goal from uh, from that left hand channel. But yeah, I, I just I just feel like it's significant. I mean, it's obviously big results for Coventry, for Wickham, for Sunderland, for Pompey. But given Ipswich's run of form coming into this, they're surrounded by teams in decent nick. The manner of victory, the way they came back from it against a decent side. Um, I'm not saying I think that they are much better than I thought before the weekend but they are now at least in a position on the back you know they can try and build something they're on the back of a decent win it's not all doom and gloom they've got something to work with they've got strikers scoring from open play again so we'll see what goes what happens from here yeah great performance from Caden Jackson he seemed to to use his pace and exploit the conditions you could see him running into channels making good early runs uh you know judging the bounce of ball of the ball very well on a few occasions as well he was helped by great performance from alan judge as well both of those players with two goals each and an assist each as well flinadine zidane's uh, getting 
plenty of shout outs in the Sunday scouting reports as well. Just a, a cut above and a young player who is uh, doing very well, despite his team not necessarily doing that well uh, in all games recently. Uh, another real sort of um, glimmer of hope, I suppose, for Ipswich as well as that good result is that they've got eight of their last 12 games at home at Portman Road. So maybe a bit more to look forward to for, for the Ipswich fans than maybe they thought there was pre-weekend. For me, I think a significant result was Fleetwood 2, Peterborough 1. Not just because that was the end of Peterborough's six-game winning streak uh, and extending Fleetwood's to four in a row, but I just think it's worth flagging up Fleetwood so that we can all keep a bit more of an eye on them. Bizarrely, George... Peterborough are fourth, Fleetwood are eighth. Fleetwood have got a better points per game record than Peterborough. Mm. They've played three games fewer. Their points per game is 1.7. Peterborough's is 1.67. So, you know, we've been effusive in our praise of Peterborough and in thinking that they could be a, you know, an automatic promotion contender. So if that's the case, then, then why not Fleetwood Town? Uh, they don't always look scintillating but then again does anyone necessarily at this level at the you moment do. you always do i do thanks George. that's <laughs> that's helpful um two additions in january catching the eye lewis gibson who is a 19 year old defender on loan from everton and also glenn whelan i honestly think it had gone under my radar that fleetwood signed glenn whelan he's now played six games for them the first two were draws and then they've won the next four so is it whelan and coots in midfield whelan and coots in midfield i mean and that is they need someone to be running surely who's doing the running well they're playing 3-4-3 three, three now so they're just sort of sitting in midfield and letting the wow letting the wing backs go three in front of them three behind them don't have to do that much running that's fun pretty good eh sounds like i should just slot in there i think there you go so yeah. keep an eye on fleetwood is what i'm saying to you and also but i was just gonna say on that game as well just the what a blow for for moisa um mm. to get his chance to stake his claim to come back into the side, to get Tony a penalty, suspended. Tony suspended, to mm. get a penalty, which he can take purely because Tony's not playing and to have the rarest of all things where a saved penalty down the middle. Yeah. Um, and then they go and lose the game. That's probably going to be the last we, we see of Moisa not starting great. for I, th- I think Tony's got another game banned, so it'll be interested to see if Issa starts again in the next game. Um, the reason I keep mentioning points per game is because the league table is definitely lying in League One at the moment because of all these games in hand. It's, it's basically irrelevant. It's basically irrelevant. There just you don't, go. Just don't, I mean, there's no point looking at it. I mean, just where you are in comparison to the teams around you is important, but whether you're fifth, fourth, third, second, or whatever. Well, guess what, George? We've got a new points per game league leader. And wow. it's Coventry City. Uh, they took advantage of Rotherham's home draw with AFC Wimbledon. Uh, Coventry now with four wins in a row. Now, the last two weekends, they've beaten Southend and Bolton. So, pretty, you know, very much teams they should be beating. Uh, in between, they beat Portsmouth in a big game. Um, and, George, I wanted to ask you, did you know that we were witness to the most significant moment of Coventry's season so far? When they were 1-0 down against Fleetwood and 1-2-1. When they were 1-0 down against Fleetwood and 1-2-1, they had played 13 and a half games in a 4-2-3-1 formation. At half-time, Mark Robbins made a double substitution. McFadgen came on for Shipley. They went three at the back. Biamu came on for Hiwula. They didn't need Hiwula out wide. They wanted a presence up top. Biamu scored. They won 2-1 that day. Since then, they've stuck with that formation or a variation of a three at the back formation. Um, more recent times, they've been playing with just about 100 central midfield players somehow in this sort of box formation in midfield. And they've taken 36 points from 17 games since then. 10 wins, 6 draws and 1 defeat. Defensively, since then, they've only conceded more than once on one occasion uh, in the last 15 games. So that back three of McFadgen, Hyam and Rose is doing the business. The only bad news is... Jordi Hawula has only played 16 minutes since then. So <laughs> it's not worked out for everyone, but it's eight wins in 10 for Kov. Um, again, beating Southend is probably not the one to go wild about, uh, but beating Pompey in midweek was a big old result. Yeah, and, and I guess alongside Coventry, you can probably put the Wickham result <clears throat> in a similar similar category where you're going to a Bolton team that you should beat, but it's still a really significant result. And at this stage, a, a big three points for them. They hadn't won on the road for so long. Um. I wasn't necessarily convinced with the performance. I don't think they even necessarily had the best of the game, to be honest. Um, also made some decent saves. They The two goals were a penalty and an own goal. Um, so I wouldn't say that Wickham are necessarily... Uh, I don't think this is... You know, you talk about the 
the significance of that result uh, for Coventry a few months ago. I don't think this is going to be the result to kickstart Wickham's um, renaissance. Sure, and for, they needed for, for the promotion a- race, but but it, but it still is significant because it keeps them there. I mean, at one stage. Uh, during the second half on Saturday, they were second in the in the table. As I said, the table doesn't matter. But the fact that they are still in touching distance to the automatic promotion places is significant. Um, but yeah, uh, given the the similar standings of the two sides in terms of budget and resource, Coventry, I, I would say, are the real deal and the real contenders. Whereas I wouldn't say that Wickham's win here necessarily signifies anything much more than just beating a poor side, possibly fortuitously. You more or less called the Oxford-Sunderland game uh, about as good a prediction as you could possibly have asked for on the betting show. Uh, you mentioned that with the Kassam as it is, uh, three stands, and the Storm as it was, it was unlikely to be a game in which football was the winner. Um, similar to the game we saw against Ipswich the other midweek, which was nil-nil. Uh, and you did say, I mean, it's going to be a game of very few chances, a very low scoring game and more of a battle than a football match. And sadly for Oxford, but good for Sunderland, they scored a very early goal from a set piece, possibly Jordan Willis, possibly an own goal, quite hard to tell. <laughs> and uh, and Oxford, in fairness, a lot of huffing and puffing, not able to, to really do much uh, after that, really, to get back into the game. I know there's lots of injuries and you're playing lots of games at the moment, but... Uh, Oxford have dropped out somewhat from this uh, promotion battle. A Sunderland team who have now kept seven clean sheets in their last eight games, which is, well, it's what Phil Parkinson is known for. And it took a while for him to get this defensive structure in place, as is probably to be expected when you come in in the middle of a season. But certainly uh, certainly just a, a record that means you have to be you have to feel this Sunderland side are pretty ominous now. Yeah, it feels like if there's a, a, a team to go 1-0 down against at the moment in League One <laughs> after three minutes, uh, Sunderland are probably the one not to do that to because they are very, very well set up. Um, I think the, as I mentioned on the other night on Sky, I think that the Bailey Wrights edition is a really, really smart one. I think he gives them a little bit of extra uh, nous at the back alongside Willis and Flanagan. Uh, Luca Nine was brilliant again and deserves credit for the work he does in both kind of fin- the final third and the defensive third. It was never going to be a classic this one, and, and Sunderland going one 0 up after three minutes always that first goal always felt like it was going to be big, even if Oxford did have some chances to get back in it. I think the only positives Oxford fans can take from the game was Dan Adji's performance. He started. Um, which Oxford fans have been asking for for a while and, and caused some problems with his pace and his... Uh, you know, he's just he's just a very interesting footballer. He's got a lot of strings to his bow uh, as a player who plays across that front line. And Anthony Ford played at right back and one of Oxford's key... Um, the key reasons around this drop-off in form has been... I mean, people talk about Baptiste and Fosu. I would say it's Cadden's departure that's really impacted Oxford hard. And to have a right back who, like Cadden, um, is, a, is a winger by trade, not the, not the fastest, but with decent delivery, his his return from injury and his performance will be a positive as well. So credit to Sunderland, a deserved victory, but some maybe some light at the end of the tunnel for Oxford. Bailey Wright has been a huge addition for Sunderland, straight into the heart of that back three. But he did pick up an injury on Saturday, an ankle injury, which looks like it might keep him out for a few weeks so it'll be Ozturk back into the heart of that defence looking to extend this remarkable away record that Sunderland have at the moment Uh, who else shall we talk about Gillingham not only a team that won two games in a week but a team currently on the long on the longest unbeaten run uh, in the EFL that's 13 games at the moment now we previewed their game against Doncaster on the going up going down pod I predicted a narrow home win and that came to fruition but it was helped by a first half red card when Donny were 1-0 up in this game and Cameron John of Doncaster scoring a brace of own goals so uh, certainly not Jills's best performance of the season but a valuable home win uh, in the conditions and they've got uh, Fajiri Okunabire to thank for part of it. Uh, Bristol Rovers have a similar story really. Their first win under manager Ben Garner. They were 1-0 down to Blackpool and then Blackpool's captain Ben Hennigan picked up a first half red card. Bit harsh. Uh, no, I didn't think so at all. Really? I, I, he absolutely ploughed into Johnson Clark Harris from behind, which you're not allowed to do, sadly, um, and didn't get anywhere near the ball either. So I, I thought, I thought okay. probably not. I thought he was just very, very late. But anyway, fair enough. An absolute screamer from Bristol Rovers centre-back Alfie Kilgore and the winning goal from Josh Ginelli. So a very welcome win for Bristol Rovers. Remarkably, two months 
to the day before that game on Saturday, Rovers and Blackpool were both in the playoff places uh, and in the interim had the two worst records in the division. So really important for uh, for Ben Garner to get that first win in charge. Blackpool under David Dunn's interim management uh, couldn't see out their lead after Hennigan's red card. Pompey beating Shrewsbury 2-0. Not a classic this one, but notable for them that Harrison and Marquis were in the goals. Um, you know, two good strikers for the level and yet... Just the five goals for Harrison this season and seven for Marquis. So if they could lessen the goal-scoring load on Ronan Curtis, that would be another string to Pompey's bow. It is interesting, George, that no one in the league has a prolific goal-scorer apart from Peterborough. Like uh, Paddy Madden has 15, Nondue has 15, what are we, 30, 32 games in. Apart from them... But isn't that just a bit of a myth in football generally? Yeah, I, th- I think... Like it- people talk about 20-goal-a-season se- strikers. There are normally only about three a season in each league. True. If that. I still think it's unusual that we've got, you know, seven teams fighting for a couple of automatic promotion spots and only one of them has a player that scored more than like 11 goals in 33 games. That's definitely games. true. But then you'd think that like Nondrie and <clears throat> and uh, Madden will probably both hit 20. Yeah. Possibly, yeah, probably. Anyway, lastly, a crazy game between Accrington and Lincoln. Uh, this one at this stage for both teams, uh, they're kind of playing out the rest of the season without much threat of relegation, uh, certainly with very little chance of, of promotion, of reaching the playoffs. So these these are the sorts of games we want to see. Accrington with three wins in a row now, the first time they've done that this season. And some really good performances going forward for both teams, but defensively an absolute disaster. George, in League Two... Six teams won both games last week. Exeter, Plymouth, Cheltenham, Port Vale, Cambridge and Grimsby. Great day for Grimsby and their fans and people like yourself who have family ties to the area, shall we say. Because not only is it... Soon to be family ties. Not only (laughs) is it back-to-back wins for the Mighty Mariners, but a sensational article on The Athletic by... Michael Walker, who is one of the Athletics football writers, and fair to say, George, we both absolutely loved this article. It's it's about Ian Holloway, isn't it? But it's kind of about his early days with Grimsby and just how perfect these two seem to be for each other. Yeah, I swooned reading this article. It made you quite emotional, I think. Yeah, I mean, I have got a soft spot for, for town, but it's more... I said when he first got the job on the pod... You know, this feels like Grimsby are kind of the the football club version of Ian Holloway. A bit weird, not particularly, um, you know, fancy, but uh, with a great history and a really passionate fan base. Two and a half thousand people went to Bradford last uh, last week. That is just unbelievable. Remarkable. I mean, I know it's not that far, but that's a big travelling group for a side who, are, who aren't going to be going up or going down this season. Um and I love this piece because cause Holloway is a manager who, you know, you maybe forget sometimes the job that he's done at, at certain places. I mean, that Blackpool job, if, if we had been covering the championship when that happened, we would, you know, it's one of the best performances of any manager ever in, in the EFL yep. to, take, to take that team to the, to the Premier League. And as um, Michael mentions in the piece, they got 39 points, which would keep you up basically every season except for the one they were in. In, the, in their first season in the Premier League. In a, yeah, exactly, yeah, and amazing. and it makes you and, and in the piece, um, the fact that you know it's it's a club. It, my, Michael touches on these similarities between Holloway and and, and Grimsby, and he talks about how Holloway has bought shares, hundred thousand pounds worth of shares in the club, and in this day and age when football managers and the relationship with the clubs is so short term, to see a manager whose profile is quite clearly so much higher. In Grimsby, a manager who's come off the back of two less successful spells in charge of big clubs in Millwall and QPR, um, that he's committed his future so, so much to this club, not only as a manager, but also as, as a member of the board, that you've got people in the in like the, the, the foundation of the club talking about that they have no doubt he'll still be manager in five years' time, his commitment to playing a certain brand of football that Grimsby fans wouldn't really have dreamt of playing. It's all just really exciting. And reading the piece just makes me, you know, one of the key themes I'm going to be looking out for throughout the summer, throughout the next couple of seasons, is just seeing how Holloway gets on at Grimsby because it does feel like he it's his club now. He could do, especially because the start they, they've made under him, it feels like you know, they're, they're wedded together now. Even if 
you know, in October uh, this year, after the summer, they're in 24th position and struggling. It feels like it's going to be his job to sort it out. And it's a pretty rare thing for that to happen these days. He is one of the best people that you could possibly spend a day with. And I've had the pleasure, uh, before he got the Grimsby job, of spending probably three or four Saturdays with him in with Quest for the EFL on Quest show. And he is an absolute force of nature. Uh, the, the character that is portrayed of him as uh, a sort of absolute legendary joker is false. And that's not to say that he's not unbelievably entertaining, very, 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 very funny. But I think it it, it sometimes causes people to overlook that he's also uh, incredibly engaging, uh, has time for absolutely everyone. And the persona, you know, the, the hype, I guess, the excitement about him at Grimsby and the way that he has inspired in a short time uh, the supporters of the club and quite a lot of people in the surrounding area as well who might not even follow the football club uh, it's not it's not PR it's uh, it's very very genuine so it was a pleasure to read that article uh, it's on the athletic site if you'd like to sign up and check that piece out check out a piece from last week with Stuart James and Ian Evert at Barrow that was another magnificent profile of a, a manager doing a very interesting job albeit just below the uh, EFL, then do sign up to The Athletic. Uh, you can do so uh, and get 50% off and a seven-day free trial if you go to theathletic.co.uk forward slash NTT20. They are our season sponsors. And of course, we're doing the Going Up, Going Down podcast for them, which I think we're four eps in now, absolutely loving. I've already come up with my hot take for this week and it is it's seriously spicy. I cannot wait. Is it a doozy? It's a doozy. Like I genuinely think it's going to upset a lot of people. And given we that's say the that every idea, week I know people keep saying they just agree with us. I know we, we've had too many agreeable hot takes so far, but I'm changing the mould this week. Uh, elsewhere in League Two, the massive game in this, especially with Swindon postponed thanks to the storm, was Argyle against Crew because uh, Argyle have been pushing towards these top spots for the last few months, having turned their season around after a slow start. They are a real force of nature at the moment, but they came up against a crew side on some serious form as well. Do you reckon Chris Porter slept yet? Oh, I was wondering how long we'd talk about this game before mentioning Chris Porter. I hadn't even finished my blurb. No. Uh, I reckon he has slept very well because Chris Porter is an exceptionally experienced professional in the EFL, a goal scorer, and someone who hopefully has the perspective to know that A, mistakes happen, B, he probably wasn't the only crew player to make, make a mistake in that game, and C... There's plenty more football still to be played. But it was a bad miss, wasn't it, mate? It's one of the worst misses I've ever seen. Uh, the, I mean, it's a bit different that it was, it was from 12 yards rather than two yards. So there was enough of the goal, but it, the ball just comes to him. Who is it that sets it left? Not sure. But, I mean, it's three on one and the one being the keeper. The keeper commits himself. It's rolled to Porter pretty much on the penalty spot with no one in the goal. He's got a man to his left. If he wanted to, he probably could have just passed it one more. And he's tried to roll it in bottom left and he sent it a fair a fair bit wide at one all against a promotion rival away from home in the second half and you go and lose the game 2-1. I mean, that is... There's, there's, there's a freeze frame that you can take of Porter as he's hitting the ball and that basically makes it kind of a 98% chance that they are about to get a, a victory that could could feasibly literally change the course mm. of crew Alexandria Football Club and Plymouth Argyle and he misses it and they lose the game that's very dramatic but I like it I mean it's it's the case you've got two sides late on in a season minimal between them both going both part of a group of four clubs who are going for three spots it's massive it's massive if, if you worked out the likelihood of each team getting promotion now compared to if crew had won the game they're vastly different. So, I mean, sorry, I hope he's not listening, but but it, it's undoubtedly a big moment in the season and fingers crossed, because he's, he's been in decent form recently. Fingers crossed he can, you know, get the goals needed for crew to, to make sure they get one of those spots. Yeah, and more uh, unideal refereeing, I think you'd probably say in this game. Uh, crew felt they should have had a penalty early on and the penalty that Plymouth were awarded, which led to their winner, it was difficult from the camera angle 
that we had to look at to see really what the infringement was. But um, Argyle now one point behind Crew with a game in hand, and that was a hugely significant result, as you say. Uh, Exeter and Cheltenham, uh, obviously still very much in the automatic promotion conversation. They both picked up narrow wins. Uh, Exeter's against Macclesfield, having blown a 2-0 lead uh, and then nicking it at the end to win 3-2. That's a, a valuable late winner, albeit not the best performance. Cheltenham conceded a freak goal early in their game, but... In fairness, they gave Leighton Orient barely a sniff and they created plenty. And so that 2-1 win uh, heftily deservedly I would say, for, for Cheltenham. And they, they keep rolling. I still feel that Cheltenham are uh, being somewhat forgotten in this promotion battle. They've got a bit of ground to make up, but they've got the best defence in League Two. They've got more attacking options now, post-January, than they had to start the season. They've got a brilliant home record and plenty of home games still to play, and I do think they are a team not to forget. One team that's really crept up on us, George, and that I'm feeling really, really excited about at the moment is Port Vale. Uh, I'm, I'm basically waiting for you to tell me you bought a Port Vale shirt. I feel like we're getting into that kind of Newport County territory here. It feels a bit like Newport last season. I'm clearly destined to fall for one playoff contender League Two side every year. And look, you know, it's difficult to be fully impartial. So, you know, if I, if I fall for someone, then I fall for someone. And at the moment, it's Vale because they've won four and drawn one in their last five, all of those games against top 10 teams. That's why they've moved into the playoff places. That tells me they are peaking at exactly the right time and they could be a serious, serious, uh, well, a protagonist from here on to the end of the season in League Two. Um, they were missing five first-team players on the weekend and they dispatched Cole U 3-0. This time last week, I banged on about how Colchester United and their zeros and ones, they, they hadn't conceded more than two in a game all season, blah, 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 conceded three in both games this week, Colchester. So they're on, on, on the naughty step. But for Vale, to see Cullen scoring two goals, that sort of really jogged my memory of him being so important for Blackpool in their promotion. Two great goals as well. Brilliant goals in their promotion a couple of years ago through the playoffs. He scored four goals in three playoff games there to get them up. It does make me think, because they are quite sort of strictly 4-3-3, and John Askey's done an amazing job, but he's quite, he's fairly um, unflexible in the way that they play, and it tends to be Pope or Bennett up front who are kind of target men types does make me wonder whether there might need to be a way of getting Cullen more involved because his finishing ability uh, on show on the weekend is is exceptional and Conlon as well the creative midfield player um, playing brilliantly too so I'm pretty excited about them just looking at that that kind of group of teams if we are going to say at the moment that it's it's three out of Swindon to crew and Plymouth for the autos with Cheltenham having the potential of getting involved given they've only played 32 games are we now saying that it's Port Vale Colchester, Northampton and Bradford, two of those into four, or, or do we think the likes of Forest Green, Salford, Cambridge could still muscle their way into it? I think it's very unlikely. Uh, I'm also aware that as a as a group of people, not us specifically, I think we are still going quite early on the whole, like, the end of the season is nigh. Um, there's still about, well, we're over two thirds of the way through, but only just. There's still about thirty percent of games still to be played in Definitely. this in this division. Well, so, so, so I'm not going to say they're not because of that, but I don't <laughs> think that they are. I mean, okay. you know, Cambridge. We need to talk about because Mark Bonnar seems to be the greatest manager that this level's ever seen. Uh, George, any particular thoughts on Cambridge winning four games in a row I'm to so, kick off? I'm so torn because <laughs> the way they win is, sim- you know, it's. Coming from behind, it's late goals. You know, they were 1-0 down here and, and scored twice. The win against Colchester was exactly the same. 1-0 down and scoring twice. Sounds like the sort of thing you normally say is unsustainable, George. Yeah, I probably do. And, and I think that winning four games in a row, you know, Mark Bonner isn't going to be a genius. Having said that... Mm, we'll having said that, I, I'm torn here because I, I think that appointing caretakers full-time is, is rarely works. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if they thought that Mark Bonner was the was the answer when they appointed him. He'd have got the top of the job full-time and a small selection of marginal wins shouldn't change that. However, there's no denying the good feeling that he's brought into the club. There's no denying the 12 points that he's earned the club. It would seem pretty unfair if we didn't get a, didn't get a crack at it. So, Well, he's got it till the end of the season. They've yeah. still got 12 games or whatever it is. So, you know, we'll, we'll know a bit more what by about, the end there. What about we? the lad who... Um, what's his name? Rusk. Rusk. 
who left his job to take over. What's happened to him? Well, they're obviously doing the Rusk assessment and then uh, <laughs> turns out Mark Bonner is one of the greatest winners of all time. Um, so, you know, we'll see what happens, but it's good vibes at Cambridge, that's for sure. And that's quite pleasant because, boy, did they have a, a poor run at the end of Colin Calderwood's regime. A couple more narrow wins, a comeback win for Walsall, 3-2 against Northampton. Now, there's a great bunch of Walsall fans that we follow on Twitter. And so I was quite excited because I like them a lot. Uh, to check in with them after this game. And it was one of those ones where, like, actually the the discontent with how the team played for the first hour of that game hadn't quite been eclipsed by the excitement of scoring three goals and coming back to win 3-2. So, you know, it, it felt to me like one of those games that only happens a couple of times a season where you just end up absolutely thrilled. But I think there was some a bit of realism and, and, and uh, basically fans thinking that the way that Daryl Clark set up for this game was so unambitious, so defensive and didn't actually set them up very effectively to deal with Northampton's threat. So the, the switch after about an hour was clearly inspired because Walsall came back to win that game. But it wasn't it wasn't quite the reaction I was uh, expecting, put it that way. Also had narrow wins for Mansfield against Newport. Newport's slide has been remarkable. Four months ago, after a quarter of the season, uh, they were fourth. Since then, they've got the second worst record in League Two and they've slid all the way down, as have, to be fair, Bradford and Forest Green, who were also in the playoff places after about 14, 15 games. Salford narrowly beating Stevenage, who I felt a bit sorry for because they created quite a lot of chances, which lets us finish, George, on Stevenage Football Club. They are like a bag of revels. You never know what's coming next. Alex Ravel, new manager. What's going on there? I mean, who knows? I, I, I'm not surprised seeing Graham Wesley struggling. But at the same time, I cannot believe that they are surprised that they have brought him in and have seen enough of doing what he's always done in terms of bringing in fairly random recruits in terms of the, the style of football. On the back of probably their best performance, except for the Cambridge 4-0 win, where they played very well against Salford and were unlucky not to take something from the game. They've dispensed with him already and brought in Alex Revel, who's never managed before. It just, the whole thing smacks of desperation. Mm. It is. It's quite saddening, really. It's not sad that they've got rid of um, Graham Wesley and brought in Alex Revel, by the way. I I don't mean, I'm not even necessarily having a go at that. it's, It's not something that I'm particularly upset about, that Wesley has left the club. I I, I don't enjoy his style of football. Um... But you know, he, he, I don't. I don't always enjoy the way that he expresses himself, and you hear lots of horror stories from former players. But so none, I'm not. But none of that is a surprise to, to Stevenage, a, a club who've employed him twice before, or a club who know what, everything that he's about. I just don't understand how anything that's happened could be could make them think like, ah, right, yeah, yeah, this is what he's like. We have we have to get rid of him because this is bad. Like, you know what you're going to get. Yeah, yeah, I agree. The, the reason I'm sad is because it feels to me like, as a club, Stevenage have or I had considered themselves to have established themselves as a football league club, which, um, given the their history in non-league, is not easy to do. And there are a few other teams who have who have done it, but it, it, it kind of often feels like those clubs are fighting a bit of a losing battle, but it didn't feel the case necessarily with Stevenage. We were aware that, you know, resources-wise and budget-wise, they were towards the bottom of the division, but they, they seem to have some fairly creative ways of raising funds uh, in the summer and... Uh, ambitions after just missing out on the playoffs last season to see what's happened in the last nine months or so is just very very sad they've won three games out of 34 uh, they've they've scored 23 goals they've got 22 points um, they've got a seven point gap to safety at the moment depending on what happens with Macclesfield that could change but um, they've been about as miserable a team as, as I can remember covering and just makes me quite sad to be honest yeah I mean it's hard to when you're getting relegated by... And there's a seven-point gap between you and the, your closest rival in a league where there's only one relegation spot and that rival's already had six points deducted. If they don't go down due to a, you know, non-footballing matters, they are, I mean, they're, they're one of the worst teams we've seen in League Two mm. ever and they might stay up, which would it's be... Just, but it's just weird to see how went so bad so quickly. I guess that's what I'm saying. I didn't consider them to be a club who were a couple of bad decisions away from basically chucking away no. their league status. But I mean, there was always, I mean, the, the, the data lads always looked at them last season, even under Mamria in their 
tilt at the playoffs and said, you know, this isn't a this isn't a top half team. They're they're running very hot, and that that's proven to be the case. The data lads uh, there who uh, tend to be right, don't they? Yes. Um, look, that's the end of the pod for this week. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, just a reminder that uh, the Going Up Going Down podcast is available for free on all podcast platforms and if you search for it and subscribe then you will be able to hear my searingly hot take on Thursday afternoon we hope that you will subscribe to that because we're having a really good time making it and we hope that it's an enjoyable listen Uh, follow us at ntt20pod where we do the old uh, social media that's the same on Instagram at ntt20pod as ever we're very grateful for your support hope that you have a happy and a safe week Storm Dennis still lingering uh, and we'll talk again on Thursday.